The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org backslash radio hour. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we have a conversation with Lexi Freeman about her latest novel, The Book of Ein, which was a way to kind of reflect on, it's about a woman who gets kind of drawn into the world of Ayn Rand enthusiasts, amongst other things. And it was an interesting way to kind of rethink the influence and kind of the ideas of Ayn Rand in the present in a particularly, well, maybe absurdism is the only way in which like we can really take Ayn Rand's ideas, you know, into hand. Yeah, it's a very funny book. It's this writer who's canceled and who then starts to seek sort of cultural refuge in a, in a bunch of different places. L.A. is one of them. Mm-hmm. Her time in L.A. is really hilarious. And Ayn Rand is sort of one of the ways in which she starts to essentially, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Disassemble the absurdities of the contemporary world. Um, yeah. It's super funny. It was, like, genuinely a pleasure to read. It's pretty rare that I read something and I laugh out loud. Yes. And I did do that this with this book. Totally agree. There were so yeah. many moments that my husband was like, what are you reading? Because I was literally <laughs> yeah. giggling to myself on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> but Eric, what is your, what's your history with Ayn Rand? I think we all have one. Not really much. I, you know, I've never, if I'm going to be honest, I've never read any of the novels. I know about her thought, usually as it like percolated down through, I guess you would say like public figures that trade and libertarian ideas, you know, and I think maybe I, (laughs) I read up a little bit about her around the time when I was watching Mad Men. I think that's mostly what I associate Ayn Rand with. Um, Is she, is is she mentioned in that show? I think she is, or either that, or perhaps I saw something that was suggesting that Don Draper is kind of like the Randian hero, Mm. Um, you know, a guy who completely makes his own world and and that Uh sort of thing. uh Um, But what about you? What's your background with Ayn? I read The Fountainhead when I was 14 or so because I was undertaking a project of reading the biggest books I could find at the (laughs) library. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is fun. It's juicy. It's sexy. And then even as a 14-year-old, when I got to the end, I was like, wait a second. I think it's bad. (laughs) Um, These might not be the best people. Are these heroes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, though, you know, I think Howard Rourke, for me, remained a really insistently compelling figure until until I was old enough to really articulate <laughs> what what was what was going on there. <laughs> I feel that's similar to my experience with the real world, <laughs> watching it as like as a teen being like, these people are amazing, and then watching it as an adult and being like, oh these people are oh no. Are oh, alcoholics. Dear, no. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> these people don't have their life together. <laughs> no, they sure don't. Anyway, this is a it's a great book and Lexi was so much fun to talk to. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to that conversation. Let's do it.
We're excited to welcome Lexi Freeman to the show. Lexi is an editor, author, and TV writer whose first novel, Inappropriation, was long listed for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize and the Miles Franklin Award. She joins us today from her home in Australia to discuss her latest novel, The Book of Ein. A fresh satire of contemporary political and cultural life, The Book of Ein centers on the story of a protagonist licking her wounds after the New York Times dubs her satirical novel Classist, which sets off a cancellation effort that sees her tossed from her lofty perch amid the New York literary establishment. When Anna finds herself drawn to a tour group of Ayn Rand fans, she begins to research the writer's political views and personal life, finding common ground in Ayn Rand's search for a life of quote-unquote rational selfishness. As Anna attempts to restart her life against Ayn Rand's fictional and real-world models, she goes searching for herself in Los Angeles and the Greek island of Lesbos, an existential journey by turns hilarious and poignant through which Freeman both skewers and reckons with contemporary culture. Thanks so much for joining us, Lexi. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Actually, you know what, Lexi? I was hoping that you could, just because the voice and humor of this novel are so particular, if you could just read us a small passage from the novel, just so that listeners can get a sense of it. Sure. That fall, there was only one event on my calendar, a long-standing invitation to a women's luncheon at the Upper East Side mansion of a conservative socialite rumored to be hiding an Islamophobic Muslim authoress with a fatwa from the liberal media. The guests were a sprawling mix. There were conservative media personalities in primary colors and pumps, grungy Gen X feminist professors, reformist Muslim commentators in hijabs and comic book tees, a disgraced former legend of the downtown punk scene who insisted on calling her old drinking pals trannies, and a handful of young, ambitious media types seeking finance for their magazines. What everyone could agree on? Female genital mutilation was bad. (laughs) Thank you so much. Lexi, all right, let's start with the obvious. Why did you get interested in Ayn Rand? I think I was interested in her in the beginning because I had just published my first book, which is a satire of identity politics. And I thought, what can I do next to really irritate people? (laughs) So I thought (laughs) the godmother of libertarianism sounds good. And as an Australian, I didn't know that much about her. She wasn't a big part of my adolescence, as I think she was for a lot of people in the U.S., and beyond, beyond adolescence, but it often starts there. And so I started reading her nonfiction first, and then I started wading through the fiction, and I got really interested in her biography because she was a really strange woman, a real outlier. And so, yeah, it was a combination of being interested in the philosophy and this idea of selfishness as a counterpoint to the altruism that I felt was very much being a virtue that was being used or being signaled a lot on the internet at that moment. So I was interested in sort of finding a philosophy that might contradict that in a fun way. And then also her biography, I found really fun. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit for listeners who maybe didn't read her as a 14-year-old and get obsessed with Howard Rourke and think that he was sexually extremely compelling (laughs) (laughs) maybe you could give people a sense of who she was yeah I mean she emigrated 
from Russia in, I think, 1928. And she came out on her own to the US. She was from a middle-class Jewish family. And after the Bolshevik revolution, her family sort of lost their money. And this was really the kind of seminal moment for her where she was really scarred by watching her father be humiliated by the Bolsheviks and the family losing everything. And so she emigrated to the, the country she saw as the absolute antithesis to everything happening in Russia, to the US. And from the very beginning, though, she was sort of rejected by the literary establishment, which was much more left-leaning and communist-sympathizing. So from the get-go, she was kind of a pariah, which I think was heartbreaking to her, but also very motivating. <laughs> and I think a, a personality like that really gets a lot out of being persona non grata. And I think that really helped her write her incredibly dense novels that are very didactic. And really this kind of philosophy developed around this idea of selfishness and living for oneself and not living for others, which is kind of what she saw, you know, socialism and communism as being all about. And that appealed to some people, especially on the right, and not so much to other people in the US. But she was an atheist, so she was never actually fully embraced by the right either because she wasn't Christian, she didn't believe in God. So she's kind of always been this this figure sort of on the outside of everything. And she was a woman, so she was this kind of weird proto-feminist who sort of didn't believe in feminism because she believed in the individual. She didn't like groups. So, you know, a woman grouped, that idea wasn't interesting to her. She saw herself as an individual and she had some kind of quite conservative ideas of gender roles, except for herself <laughs> and certain kinds of sort of Nietzschean superwomen. In these ways, obviously, Ayn Rand is a perfect foil for your protagonist, Anna, who's written a novel. When your novel opens, Anna has been canceled <laughs> because of a novel that she wrote about poverty and the poor, but from the vantage point of her rich friend's Manhattan Pita Terre. <laughs> so, and <laughs> it seems on the one hand like such a such a common thing, but she gets canceled. And so she feels this kind of outsider status that you're saying Ein felt. But she's also shot through with a lot of the, and part of the pleasure of your novel is its excavation of Ayn Rand's personal life. So there is, as you've been suggesting, she believes in these strict gender roles, but not for herself. She also has, as your protagonist tries to navigate, this kind of, she's a sadist intellectually, but she's a masochist in the sheets. Um, <laughs> and so it's like, that is such a, but also she's very sexually liberated. Like she's one of these fundamentally complex characters who like you can't really pin down and i wonder what was it like trying to explore ayn rand's life and the complicated philosophy and also the dark legacy that comes out of that philosophy through the protagonist anna it was fun because like you've just said some of the things that i found most interesting about ayn was this kind of psychosexual thing she has in terms of the way that she can be a sort of intellectual top is by being a sexual mm -hmm. bottom. And she 
she talked about that idea that women who had power and success would struggle to find men who were their equal or would need to find someone to match them. She believed in in love and sex as very transactional. So you were sort of, you had to be paired with someone who had the same kind of qualities and quality as you. And I think this protagonist, Anna, is struggling with this idea of what she has to offer as a woman who is just about to turn 40 and and has had some literary success. And the transactional nature of being a woman whose career comes first. And so she's sort of navigating what she has to offer in a city like LA, which at this moment in in time is all about micro content. That's what all the young people around Anna are kind of obsessed with. And so, you know, what micro content can she contribute as someone who doesn't really know what that even means? And in the literary world, it's another thing as she is surrounded by younger men who are sort of who sort of want a career like hers or are sort of emerging or aspiring writers. And so there's this idea of what do you have to offer as an aging woman? Because we know what that looks like as a man who has power and status for younger women. So there was this kind of role re- gender role reversal that I found really interesting with Ayn and with Anna. And Ayn also had relationships with younger men and she had an infamous affair with a man 25 years younger than her while she was married and he was married. And so there was some just really great parallels there with this protagonist and with Ayn Rand. And they were sort of perfect for exploring this idea of how you navigate female sexuality and power, especially as an aging woman and what you have to offer in certain dynamics. Yeah, I mean, I think power is like the thing or one of the things that keeps fluctuating in this book in in somewhat unpredictable ways and that it it sometimes moves between people or in a relationship almost counter to the way that I think culturally we have decided that power works. (laughs) And I wonder if there was like a, if there was sort of a base relationship that you were kind of thinking of where you were like, here's an example of power that exists in a relationship in a really complicated way and that we actually don't see depicted that often in literature. I think primarily the relationship between the older woman and the younger man was something that I thought was really interesting, especially in light of Me Too. I guess there's the notorious case of Asia Argento. Not to litigate that case because I don't know very much about it, but I, I remember when that happened, I found that really interesting that this young, attractive actor who she had worked with came out against her. And I think that I find that relationship really interesting because there is this power that comes with youth and beauty. And it's not just for men. I mean, obviously, young women have an enormous amount of power because of youth and beauty. And that's something I feel the Me Too movement hasn't really explored much. It's done the sort of the work of talking about how women are exploited for those qualities. But then I don't think it's kind of gone. It hasn't really pursued the other side of that equation, which is women having a little more sort of accountability or understanding of what that power is and how it's used. And And so that is interesting to me, but that's not exactly what this book is exploring. Maybe next time (laughs) I'll I'll wade into that. 
debate, but this book is looking at how complicated it is with when there's a younger man who has, in a sense, you know, as a man, there's power in his alignment with patriarchy, but then there's the youth and beauty thing. But then there's still this idea that this is a young person who doesn't understand the world as well as this older woman might and is vulnerable in certain ways. And so, yeah, I wanted to kind of explore how we might think about power in that sense, who holds it and how transactional that relationship is. What's the young man getting from the woman? What's she getting from him? And kind of underpinning all of that is this idea of the ego and how much romantic love is just about that. Because, you know, this idea of being with a younger person, a lot of it is often about a sort of sense of the ego is relishing the fact that, you know, you've been able to score someone who society deems to be a attractive and valuable kind of person in that sense. And so the book is sort of looking at how the ego is pushing us into these kinds of relationships. And obviously Ayn Rand is a good person through whom to explore these ideas of ego (laughs) as that was, you know, really what was driving everything in her life. And that's obviously a big part of what drives most of us when we live in a society that's geared towards making us the thing we're all trying to do is is achieve goals that society rewards and and our ego is rewarded for. So that was another kind of part of the story that I really wanted to explore, this idea of ego and ego death. Part of what percolates both was this question of the ego, but also I think one of the like quests that Anna as a character is on and kind of maybe in the end ultimately the quest for this fails, which is like, for lack of a better word, and we could talk about what this means, like an actual relationship, which would be something that is like not transactional. I think like Anna at at multiple moments that are like, by the way, also we're talking about things that are heady, but for listeners, this is mostly presented in the book in a very hilarious, I mean, no less heady, but like very hilarious way that I think most of you will find like very relatable. So this, like, Anna is searching for a relationship that's not, let's say, merely transactional. And I think in in many ways, like, she kind of can't find that throughout the book. So there are the ones that we're all familiar with, which is there's a hilarious scene early in the book, which you had started with, that she is at a publisher's gathering, basically, and she's pitching. And as we all do, you know, you pitch as if, oh, I'm just, this is casual, we're just friends, you know, this is very New York and very LA. And, but the reality is she wants something from the woman that she's pitching to. And as soon as it doesn't look like that thing is going to happen, she falls into kind of an emotional tailspin. But then this also happens as she's trying to, you know, navigate relationships in her life. There's a relationship with a micro content creator in LA that becomes also very transactional in like a very concrete kind of way. And then towards the end of the book, there's a relationship that feels like it might almost be not ego driven because it's in the process of this like Isle of Lesbos ego destruction seminar therapy session that she's part of. But that also turns out to be quite transactional. And throughout, she's kind of reminded 
always of Ayn Rand, even when, after the midpoint of the book, she no longer wants to be reminded of that, right? She wants to move away from that. So I'm curious if one of the things that the book is is tearing around is the real struggle to find non-transactional relation in the present. And like what you thought about that or how, is there a way out of the kind of transactional power dynamics that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely what the book is exploring is, you know, how how most relationships have that transactional quality and what it might take to move beyond that. And I don't, no spoilers, but I don't think the character really finds a relationship that does transcend the transactional, except maybe in in her friendships and the relationship with the self, which to me is the sort of main relationship in the book, is Anna's relationship with herself. That's kind of the journey that in a way everyone, <laughs> she's using everyone else as a way to sort of come to a deeper understanding of herself. And maybe that's all romantic love ever is. And I think the book is sort of interested in that. But yeah, the primary relationship in the book, I think, is the relationship with the self. And, you know, Ayn Rand, she sort of never got there either. I mean, that's the sort of tragedy with her. She had this affair with this much younger man that ended in disaster where, in a sense, she felt used and betrayed and, like, he used the philosophy against her in the sense of what they were basically trying was sort of, you know, one of the earlier polyamorous arrangements that was all right. that came out of this idea of everyone just does what they want. And um, and there's no guilt. No, there's no, harm. no, it's just, yeah. you know, we're living for ourselves, not for each other. And obviously that requires honesty, but then he wasn't honest. And, and because of the status imbalance between them, where she was kind of his teacher and he was more of a sort of disciple, even though he ended up working with her, that made it impossible for him to really be honest about the fact that he'd fallen out of love with her. So again, all this stuff with the power imbalance came to the fore and ended up capsizing their relationship. But even at an ego death commune where Anna ends up, it's very hard, I think, to find to find a relationship that isn't still built on this idea of getting something from someone. And in the end, it becomes you know, what is this person getting from me in terms of like their deep psychological wound? Like Anna becomes, some people have said like a mother figure to this young boy, but I would say she becomes a father figure. <laughs> like that's the sort of, to me, that's like the interesting thing there. This boy in a sense wants a father and there's something about a woman who's a bit like Ayn Rand that's actually more paternal than maternal in terms of like masculine qualities that she might have, if we're still allowed to talk about masculine qualities. Anyway, so she's, I think, exploring how even there we have these transactional relationships with people based on our family of origin kind of material. And yeah. Just to push this a tiny bit further, I think also this like quest for the self that Anna is on also feels a little bit like, not fruitless, because even if one learns that it's a failure, you know, like that is some kind of fruit that comes from that attempt or the task. But it's really hard in the world of the novel, which very much reflects our own world, to locate 
the self, an authentic self, in a world that is constructed partially because of transactional power dynamics of surfaces and performance. There's a whole, a lot of the section of the book that happens in LA, which is a perfect stage for it, so to speak, is all about performing, you know, either literally performing to create micro content, but also performing in terms of what your relationship with this person is, and that's deeply tied to the transactional nature of those relationships. But similarly, even in this like glimpse of a possibly idyllic relationship that we have at the end, or Edenic, it's kind of outside of time, it's in a commune, everybody is also performing their communality, yeah. as it were. You know, So, I mean, is this just a trap that we can't get out of, you know, obviously there's a psychological basis for the self just being an endless performance, but I'm just curious how you think the character cashes out what even can be possible for a self. I think that's part of the sort of, um, in a sense, the joke of the book is that, yeah, you go and you try to destroy your ego and destroy this idea of the self and the performance of the self, but it still kind of rears its head in ways that you can't anticipate unless you really kill your ego and become enlightened, in which case you don't need other people. You don't need love. You don't need anything. So yeah, I kind of, I think it is a trap. And I'm reading this book at the moment about, it's kind of about clowning and things spontaneous and sort of the true self, I think that's Winnicott's idea or, but this idea of like, what is the true self? And it is, it's a self beyond performance. It's a self that just like is acting on unconscious kinds of desires or impulses. And literally the only way to get there seems to be through clown school. <laughs> so I don't know. It's funny because in an original draft, there was a sequence at a clown school <laughs> because, again, I thought what better place to put someone who is kind of semi-Randian than in the sort of like humiliation zone of a clowning school, which I, I went to clown school in New York when I lived there. And one day our clown teacher didn't pay the, the rent for the room that he'd hired so we had to clown on the streets of the West Village, which was one of the most embarrassing experiences of my life, like walking around with a basket, an imaginary basket, offering people fresh fish, just like on like West 11th Street. And that, you know, that's in a sense, a kind of ego death that comes from like incredible going beyond shame. And I feel like in the book, there's a lot of there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of trying to transcend the shame. And that's a lot of the processes at this um, ego death commune uh, sort of tied to this idea of the personality is a shame deflection mechanism. Once you've conquered shame, then you should supposedly be able to just be and Anna never quite gets there as much shame as she experiences. So yeah, the answer is no. <laughs> 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 You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Lexi Freeman, author of The Book of Ein. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. I'm 
so glad to have Ed Park on the line. His new novel is called Same Bed, Different Dreams, and he's here to give us a book recommendation. Hi, I'd like to recommend two books. One is by an obscure author named John Cheever. It's the stories of John Cheever, which <laughs> I'd read many of them before, but somehow in the last year or two, I they've just hit me with full force. And uh, they're kind of my favorite things ever. The other book is one that I've just started. I just received a galley. It's by a writer named Lucy Sant, who was my teacher at Columbia many, many, many years ago. It's called I Heard Her Call My Name, A Memoir of Transition. And it's absolutely... It's a book she was meant to write, let's put it that way. And she wrote a book before called The Factory of Facts, which was an interesting memoir, but this feels like the real memoir. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I haven't finished yet, but I love it. Wow. Two great recommendations. Can you tie them together is the real question. I probably can't tie them together, although <laughs> they, I, I guess they both lived or live upstate. <laughs> so geographically, <laughs> they're maybe closer than you would imagine. Nice. Okay. Well, um, that big red book of John Cheever's is also one of my absolute favorites ever. And I'm also a giant Lucy Sant fan. So great. I appreciate both these suggestions. Can you tell us the authors and the titles of the books again? The Stories of John Cheever by John Cheever, and I Heard Her Call My Name, A Memoir of Transition by Lucy Sant. Thanks so much, Ed. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. I appreciate it. That was Ed Park. His new novel is called Same Bed, Different Dreams. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Lexi Freeman, author of The Book of I. It's funny to hear you talk about clown school because a lot of this book is also humorous. It's funny. Clowns are not so funny, but they're meant to be, I think, at times. <laughs> so what role do you think humor has in this sort of like shame, personality, ultimate humiliation, ego death scenario? Like where do we where do we fit in her humor, which is like it's kind of relentless. It's very funny, but it's also nonstop. For the most part. I mean, I guess there's a few things. I think just about the clowning stuff, again, reading this book, the thing that feels so interesting to me is when this person, this author talks about, it's not funny to say the wrong thing because you can. It's funny to say the true thing because it's wrong. Like this idea of being able to, you know, she's not interested in just offending or insulting for the sake of getting a reaction, it's it's about looking for that little kernel of truth that might be uncomfortable, but it, when you say it, it elicits this kind of involuntary response in people to just laugh, whether they like it or not. And I think that's obviously like great comedy's power. But I think with Anna, it's obviously become a kind of, again, part of her personality to make jokes in order to deflect any shame or any sort of antagonism from other people. This is how she's sort of developed a personality that kind of is a bit like Teflon that doesn't, and this is obviously a bit of a cultural phenomenon, which we've experienced more of in the last decade, where people, this idea of like trolling or making jokes to sort of deflect 
any serious or earnest kind of concerns of of people. And I think, you know, she's got that kind of contrarian personality that instead of joining the group and getting impassioned and earnest about a cause, she's just going to make a joke. And that's a safer way to engage in the world. But it's also, it's a defense mechanism from ever having to to really be vulnerable. So in a sense, there's two things. She's hitting on some uncomfortable truths with her humor, but at the same time, she's being a bit dishonest <laughs> about what's really going on for her by just deflecting with jokes all the time. So I think the book is interested in getting at the sort of the competing forces in comedy, which are to expose oneself, but only after like comedians aren't exhibitionists. I think the definition of an exhibitionist is someone who wants to be exposed in the moment, like unfiltered, just pure exposure. Whereas a comedian will go away and work on their material and then expose themselves in a kind of a way that feels, you know, safe to them, as gruesome as the material might be. So they are hiding, in a sense, some part of themselves, as exposing as it might seem, the material that they're sharing. I think that that makes total sense. And that's also part of the defensive stance of comedy, right? Because the exposure in a kind of like wound culture is like, oh, well, now you can't really attack me because like, look, I've made myself vulnerable, right? Yes, yes. But I do think while that contrarianism is in some ways kind of like um, maybe a bit of like an adolescent knee jerk that like all of us are a little bit familiar with, you know, mm-hmm. like, well, if everybody's going to like this thing, I won't like it. <laughs> yeah. It does by propelling her into the philosophy and work of Ayn Rand, it is she's reeling from feeling rejected at a party when she meets a bunch of people who seem interested in Ayn Rand. And she's like, oh, well, that might be interesting. And there's somebody none of my friends would want to talk about. So maybe that's what I'll jump into. But there are several moments where like Ayn Rand's philosophy, which again, like I do not agree with like the outcome of it, but it does bear these strange homologies to like contemporary, I guess we might say like, cultural modes on the left. So for example, as I was reading this, I kept thinking a lot about how Randian style selfishness we see as monstrous. It's the birth of modern libertarianism, which as I've, you know, I've said before on the show, I think is a fine political philosophy for a world that doesn't exist, you know. But that selfishness, how does that sit with like cultures of self-care? or cultures of selective and oftentimes quite aggressive atomization of individuals, right? Around things like brands, content creation, you know, social media, things like that. So I'm curious if you saw when you were looking at somebody that is like a cultural pariah, like Ayn Rand, like how you saw that sitting sometimes with like modes of cultural expression or engagement on the contemporary left. Yeah, I mean, that was what was kind of exciting to me about Ayn Rand was seeing all of these parallels with definitely, you know, self-care movements or, yeah, the sort of smoothie yoga meditation culture that I definitely got into in LA. And then the thing that was most exciting to me was the way that it dovetailed with certain aspects of Eastern philosophies like parts of Hinduism and Buddhism and 
you know, this kind of almost spiritual sort of idea of being self-responsible or that idea of only really being able to change what is inside you as a way to perhaps have any impact on the larger world. And I, I found that an interesting thing to explore. And then also, you know, this idea of resilience and autonomy, in a sense, there's a confused sort of leftist position around autonomy versus a kind of more victim, the sort of victimology or victim philosophy. I found it really interesting, the sort of parallels with Ayn Rand's idea of taking self-responsibility, the way that that kind of shows up in the kind of confused parts of the left where especially in terms of feminism, where women are supposed to both have agency and be autonomous, but then there's this other part that gets very kind of bogged down in this idea of being a victim or, or having no agency. And I think that's, that's a thing that kind of contemporary feminism is still figuring out, like how much, how much agency do we want to give women? How much are they going to be accountable for in a dynamic that is complicated with a man or with someone with with more power. I think that's where I found Ayn Rand's philosophy really interesting as well. This idea of taking responsibility, having resilience, all of that stuff I felt was interesting to bring into that conversation of female empowerment, even though she would never have used it that way. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But isn't that also like trying to balance how to both acknowledge structural limitation without allowing them to be deterministic? Yes. Which like I think that Ayn Rand and certainly like the libertarians that have come up in her wake do not acknowledge really structural limitation, which like from my perspective is like a fact. It is real. There is like prejudice. There are like structural limits and prejudice built into our systems but yeah, I can see what you're saying. But then there's like the, well, but we want to be autonomous, yeah. fully responsible, fully coherent, and like agential people, not just victims, but you're like pulled between these two poles. Well, that's exactly right. She didn't believe in any, the idea of structural oppression or that wasn't on her radar. She had no sense of those kinds of structures. And and so it is a bit about keeping this idea that, yes, it's true that there are these structural limitations, but then how do we bring in this idea of agency and resilience and self-responsibility, which is all tied for her to freedom? Like the free person is the person who can act in the face of extreme difficulty. or And that I thought was a great, a great thing to throw into this conversation around power and power structures. And, you know, other people have obviously used this philosophy and done extremely well with it. I mean, Jordan Peterson's whole thing is about, you know, stand up straight and clean your room and stop being a little whiny baby. So like there's a big Randian kind of flavor to his philosophy that's really obviously spoken to a lot of people. So yeah, I think there is always something interesting to take from these philosophies that we might find abject in their presentation, 
or some of their ideas or the fact that they've dated badly and they haven't brought in these new ideas that we we now accept as truth, I still think there's something interesting in there to kind of weed out. Something we haven't really talked about is that Ayn Rand was also a fiction writer, truly soap opera worthy prose. (laughs) If you haven't, if listeners haven't read it, don't. Don't. (laughs) It's also very long. And so is Anna, the central character of this book. And I don't think this gives much away, but there's a, there's a moment at the end where Anna's sort of searching for something that can sort of provide some gravity for her, provide a source of a sense of stability or a sense of meaning. She kind of lands on books and writing. And I wonder if you feel the same way in terms of these like big, big questions. And maybe, and maybe my question is also is like, what do you think Ayn Rand got out of? writing (laughs) like in some ways she strikes me as a personality that would not need fiction as a guiding principle you know or as a as a form of like work for herself yeah why didn't she just stick with nonfiction? because her work is so didactic and and it's all about ideas it's all about you know this one idea I think because she wanted at heart she was quite naive and she wanted to write stories about heroes and heroines and her favorite novels. I think she liked Victor Hugo and she was sort of, she was a fantasist in a way, even though she was very, she was a rationalist. She had an idea of this ideal man. And in a sense, I think she never found that man. And so she had to write him for a thousand pages twice. (laughs) And I think that was in a way how she kept herself company or how that, you know, what is writing a book? It's about, in a sense, putting down ideas that comfort you in the face of a world that scares you. And that can manifest as an argument or, you know, like writing satire, there's usually some kind of argument and ultimately, you want that argument to feel humane. And it's not just, you know, you don't want to be ranting for a thousand pages, which Ein's books tend to feel very didactic. And I think there's a lot of frustration for her, especially, you know, feeling that she had this kind of pariah status. But ultimately, I think she wanted to be accompanied in a way by these heroes and heroines in her books and to bring some shape to the experiences she was having in the world, you know, she always puts like a mean critic in the book who's like a vicious communist, basically a Stalinist book critic. (laughs) And, um, you know, this was her way of dealing with a world that she found hostile. And I understand that. I think books give you that space to, to work through what you deem to be the injustices or the hypocrisies or whatever it is that inspires you to think and to write and you know you spend time doing that in a book and in a way I think for myself my thinking gets better as I do it which is part of why I like it it gets more generous it gets less angry so it's it's good it makes you a little bit more humane and yeah I mean I wrote these books about the ideal man and I think that yeah I think that was really I think she was hoping her books would inspire some 
men to emerge <laughs> that might be like her prototype and this guy she had the affair with that guy was 25 years younger than her I think he he seemed to be that person at the beginning but then even he fell short because no one can be as good as a book or a book's protagonist as we wrap up I'm just curious kind of because as obviously our discussion has like revealed there's so many different ways in which you can walk into and also like take something from the book of Ayn And I'm curious if there was like something that you felt as you were writing it or as it's been circulating that like you absolutely hoped that readers walked away with. Oh, God, I don't think so. I feel like people, if anything, people have read more into the book than I anticipated and and have surprised me with great insights. I guess I sort of thought there would be more of a conversation around around spirituality and around ego death or this idea that like, what are we all doing? Like, what are we all, why are we all striving to, you know, satisfy our ego and the superego? And why are we all living these kind of superficial lives when we could all just be on a commune in Greece? And I guess I thought more people would abandon their jobs and their lives and 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 want to come join this commune and nobody's nobody's asked so I don't know maybe I miss maybe I mispresented it but um yeah I think that's the only thing I'm sort of like why aren't more people interested in pursuing enlightenment as opposed to what is still kind of just the capitalist American dream we're all still basically doing that and the other thing maybe would be I think a couple of people have sort of talked about this, but just this idea to me that feels interesting is the idea that as artists, writers, artists, you know, people who do that, you know, there is, I think the thing I wanted to explore in the book is the sort of contradiction that I feel around this idea of being an artist, which is in a sense, the most sort of selfish, self-serving, narcissistic kind of work you can do. But then artists often tend to be like very, um, they want justice. They're very socially, you know, they're very active in social justice movements and very, you know, they want equity. And I guess I feel there's a kind of contradiction at the heart of, of what the artist is trying to do, which is sort of, you know, also under capitalism, make money through your art, which is a competitive endeavor. You need to be better than everyone else in order to do that. And then like, how does socialism, you know, work? And and I'm sure it does. I'm sure there's a way, I mean, it didn't, it didn't go great under the Soviets, but, you know, I'm sure that somebody has this worked out. I'm sure some, there's a better way for artists to function in a just society under socialism. But it does seem to me that that it is at odds in a way with what it means to be an artist. And I think the book explores that. It explores this impulse underneath at the heart of, of what it is to to want to, you know, share your ideas and share this kind of this, you know, burning need you have to tell a story. And yeah, how does that square with 
with ideas of creativity and, you know, how everyone should be enrolled in a ceramics class and wouldn't the world be perfect if we were all just being creative all the time. I just think that's at odds with what the artist is, which is this kind of like monomaniacal <laughs> character that kind of needs to be a bit of an asshole and historically has been. Not to excuse, I mean, I'm not yeah. interested in excusing behavior or whatever, but I think that's that's in a sense what's required to make things that will really stand the test of time. And I felt like there was a bit of a conversation in the book around that sort of hypocrisy. Well, but that's like, I mean, yes, absolutely. But we can't make art that would stand the test of time unless it is actually addressing some monumental conflict, right? Like if if everything is fine, you know, like, <laughs> yes. what does one even make art about, right? We make art because we, like, we fell out of love with somebody, we felt jilted, we saw something horrible in the world that we wished had gone a different way. If everything, I mean, maybe maybe the arc of equality towards which art bends is, like, the thing that once it's reached that other side of the rainbow to continue torturing the metaphor and twisting <laughs> it up, like, then there's just no art there. Yes, it's just exactly. just art has exactly. served its purpose. Well, exactly. It's like we need an unjust world in order to make art. But I still think, at heart, the best art is not... It's existential. It might be triggered by conflicts that have gross inequality at their core, but ultimately a great book is not about laying down the reasons for why this is unjust. And, you know, it's like, it's about the existential suffering of or the existential conflict of its protagonist. And to me, that goes deeper than these ideas of equity. And, you know, so I think, and that often has a very dark, randian, selfish core, you know, like driving it, that these existential terrors are really ultimately about the horror of <laughs> being alive and dying alone. On that note. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what, what a wonderfully uplifting um, it's a funny way to book, end. Though, it's a funny book. Well, wait, I swear it, to God. Is it um, the little doggy guy? Oh, big dog. Um, yeah. Where she asks if he's a socialist and he says like, oh, I'm like, I like to go to parties. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's definitely, yes. She, she asks if he's a socialist and he says he, he's not introverted or he likes, he likes people or something, likes, likes going to parties. Yeah. So maybe that's yes. a good place to end. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're all socialists now. We, we all love like, going to parties. We love going, we to, love parties. going to parties. That's what. <laughs> That's what every book should be about. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Lexi Freeman, author most recently of The Book of Ein. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.